Chapter Five, Part Two of the Confessions of Arsène Lupin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Confessions of Arsène Lupin by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter Five, The Red Silk Scarf. Twenty minutes later, he stepped out of the underground railway station and made for the Rue de Berne. The victim, who was known in the theatrical world by her stage name of Jenny Saphir, occupied a small flat on the second floor of one of the houses. A policeman took the chief inspector upstairs and showed him the way through two sitting-rooms to a bedroom where he found the magistrates in charge of the inquiry, together with the divisional surgeon and M. Dudouis, the head of the detective service. Ganimard started at the first glance which he gave into the room. He saw, lying on a sofa, the corpse of a young woman, whose hands clutched a strip of red silk. One of the shoulders, which appeared above the low-cut bodice, bore the marks of two wounds surrounded with clotted blood. The distorted and almost blackened features still bore an expression of frenzied terror. The divisional surgeon, who had just finished his examination, said, "'My first conclusions are very clear. The victim was twice stabbed with a dagger and afterwards strangled. The immediate cause of death was asphyxia.' "'By Jove!' thought Ganimard again, remembering Lupin's words and the picture which he had drawn of the crime." The examining magistrate objected. But the neck shows no discoloration. She may have been strangled with a napkin or a handkerchief, said the doctor. Most probably, said the chief detective, with this silk scarf, which the victim was wearing, and a piece of which remains, as though she had clung to it with her two hands to protect herself. But why does only that piece remain? asked the magistrate. What has become of the other? The other may have been stained with blood and carried off by the murderer, you can plainly distinguish the hurried slashing of the scissors. "'By Jove!' said Ganimard, between his teeth, for the third time. "'That brute of a Lupin saw everything without seeing a thing.' "'And what about the motive of the murder?' asked the magistrate. "'The locks have been forced, the cupboards turned upside down. Have you anything to tell me, Monsieur Doudouis?' The chief of the detective service replied, "'I can at least suggest a supposition, derived from the statements made by the servant.' The victim, who enjoyed a greater reputation on account of her looks than through her talent as a singer, went to Russia two years ago, and brought back with her a magnificent sapphire, which she appears to have received from some person of importance at the court. Since then she went by the name of Jenny Saphir, and seems generally to have been very proud of that present, although for prudence' sake she never wore it. I dare say that we shall not be far out if we presume the theft of the sapphire to have been the cause of the crime. But did the maid know where the stone was? No, nobody did, and the disorder of the room would tend to prove that the murderer did not know either. "'We will question the maid,' said the examining magistrate. M. Dudouis took the chief inspector aside and said, "'You're looking very old-fashioned, Ganimard. What's the matter? Do you suspect anything?' "'Nothing at all, chief.' "'That's a pity. We could do with a bit of showy work in the department. This is one of a number of crimes, all of the same class, of which we have failed to discover the perpetrator.' This time we want the criminal, and quickly. A difficult job, chief. It's got to be done. Listen to me, Ganimard. According to what the maid says, Jenny Saphir led a very regular life. For a month past she was in the habit of frequently receiving visits on her return from the music hall, that is to say, at about half-past ten, from a man who would stay until midnight or so. He's a society man, Jenny Saphir used to say, and he wants to marry me. This society man took every precaution to avoid being seen, such as turning up his coat-collar and lowering the brim of his hat when he passed the porter's box. 
and Jenny Saphir always made a point of sending away her maid, even before he came. This is the man whom we have to find. Has he left no traces? None at all. It is obvious that we have to deal with a very clever scoundrel, who prepared his crime beforehand, and committed it with every possible chance of escaping unpunished. His arrest would be a great feather in our cap. I rely on you, Ganimard. Ah, you rely on me, chief, replied the inspector. Well, we shall see. We shall see. I don't say no, only... He seemed in a very nervous condition, and his agitation struck M. Dudouis. Only continued Ganimard. Only I swear. Do you hear, chief? I swear. What do you swear? Nothing. We shall see, chief. We shall see. Ganimard did not finish his sentence until he was outside, alone, and he finished it aloud, stamping his foot in a tone of the most violent anger. Only I swear to heaven that the arrest shall be effected by my own means, without my employing a single one of the clues with which that villain has supplied me. Ah, oh, no. Ah, oh, no. Railing against Lupin, furious at being mixed up in this business, and resolved nevertheless to get to the bottom of it, he wandered aimlessly about the streets. His brain was seething with irritation, and he tried to adjust his ideas a little and to discover, among the chaotic facts, some trifling detail, unperceived by all, unsuspected by Lupin himself, that might lead him to success. He lunched hurriedly at a bar, resumed his stroll, and suddenly stopped, petrified, astounded, and confused. He was walking under the gateway of the very house in the Rue de Surenne to which Lupin had enticed him a few hours earlier. A force stronger than his own will was drawing him there once more. The solution of the problem lay there. There and there alone were all the elements of the truth. Do and say what he would, Lupin's assertions were so precise, his calculations so accurate, that worried to the innermost recesses of his being by so prodigious a display of perspicacity, he could not do other than take up the work at the point where his enemy had left it. Abandoning all further resistance, he climbed the three flights of stairs. The door of the flat was open. No one had touched the exhibits. He put them in his pocket and walked away. From that moment he reasoned and acted, so to speak, mechanically, under the influence of the master whom he could not choose but obey. Admitting that the unknown person whom he was seeking lived in the neighborhood of the Pont Neuf, it became necessary to discover, somewhere between that bridge and the Rue de Berne, the first-class confectioner's shop, open in the evenings, at which the cakes were bought. This did not take long to find. A pastry-cook near the Gare Saint-Lazare showed him some little cardboard boxes, identical in material and shape with the one in Ganimard's possession. Moreover, one of the shop-girls remembered having served on the previous evening a gentleman whose face was almost concealed in the collar of his fur coat, but whose eyeglass she had happened to notice. "'That's one clue checked,' thought the inspector. "'Our man wears an eyeglass.' He next collected the pieces of the racing paper and showed them to a newsvendor, who easily recognized the Turf Illustré. Ganimard at once went to the offices of the Turf and asked to see the list of subscribers. Going through the list, he jotted down the names and addresses of all those who lived anywhere near the Pont Neuf, and principally, because Lupin had said so, those on the left bank of the river. He then went back to the criminal investigation department, took half a dozen men, and packed them off with the necessary instructions. At seven o'clock in the evening the last of these men returned and brought good news with him. A certain M. Prévailles, a subscriber to the Turf, occupied an entresol flat on the Quai des Augustins. On the previous evening he left his place, wearing a fur coat, 
took his letters and his paper, the Turf Illustré, from the porter's wife, walked away and returned home at midnight. This M. Prévail wore a single eyeglass. He was a regular race-goer, and himself owned several hacks, which he either rode himself or jobbed out. The inquiry had taken so short a time, and the results obtained were so exactly in accordance with Lupin's predictions, that Ganimard felt quite overcome on hearing the detective's report. Once more he was measuring the prodigious extent of the resources at Lupin's disposal. Never in the course of his life, and Ganimard was already well advanced in years, had he come across such perspicacity, such a quick and far-seeing mind. He went in search of M. Dudouis. "'Everything's ready, chief. Have you a warrant?' "'Eh? I said everything is ready for the arrest, chief.' "'You know the name of Jenny Safir's murderer?' "'Yes. But how? Explain yourself.' Ganimard had a sort of scruple of conscience, blushed a little, and nevertheless replied, "'An accident, chief. The murderer threw everything that was likely to compromise him into the Seine. Part of the parcel was picked up and handed to me.' "'By whom?' "'A boatman who refused to give his name for fear of getting into trouble.' but I had all the clues I wanted. It was not so difficult as I expected. And the inspector described how he had gone to work. "'And you call that an accident?' cried M. Dudouis. "'And you say that it was not difficult. Why, it's one of your finest performances. Finish it yourself, Ganimard, and be prudent.' Ganimard was eager to get the business done. He went to the Quai des Augustins with his men and distributed them around the house. He questioned the portress, who said that her tenant took his meals out of doors, but made a point of looking in after dinner. A little before nine o'clock, in fact, leaning out of her window, she warned Ganimard, who at once gave a low whistle. A gentleman in a tall hat and a fur coat was coming along the pavement beside the Seine. He crossed the road and walked up to the house. Ganimard stepped forward. "'Monsieur Prévail, I believe?' "'Yes, but who are you?' "'I have a commission to—' He had not time to finish his sentence. At the sight of the men appearing out of the shadow, Prévail quickly retreated to the wall and faced his adversaries, with his back to the door of a shop on the ground floor, the shutters of which were closed. "'Stand back!' he cried. "'I don't know you!' His right hand brandished a heavy stick, while his left was slipped behind him and seemed to be trying to open the door. Ganimard had an impression that the man might escape through this way and through some secret outlet. "'None of this nonsense,' he said, moving closer to him. "'You're caught. You had better come quietly.' But just as he was laying hold of Prévail's stick, Ganimard remembered the warning which Lupin gave him. Prévail was left-handed, and it was his revolver for which he was feeling behind his back. The inspector ducked his head. He had noticed the man's sudden movement. Two reports rang out. No one was hit. A second later, Prévail received a blow under the chin from the butt-end of a revolver, which brought him down where he stood. He was entered at the dépôt soon after nine o'clock. Ganimard enjoyed a great reputation even at that time, but this capture, so quickly effected, by such very simple means, and at once made public by the police, won him a sudden celebrity. Prévail was forthwith saddled with all the murders that had remained unpunished, and the newspapers vied with one another in extolling Ganimard's prowess. The case was conducted briskly at the start. It was first of all ascertained that Prévail, whose real name was Thomas de Roque, had already been in trouble. Moreover, the search instituted in his rooms, while not supplying any fresh proofs, at least led to the discovery of a ball of whipcord similar to the cord used for doing up the parcel, and also to the discovery of daggers which would have produced a wound similar to the wounds on the victim. But on the eighth day everything was changed. 
Until then Prévailles had refused to reply to the questions put to him. But now, assisted by his counsel, he pleaded a circumstantial alibi and maintained that he was at the Folie Bergère on the night of the murder. As a matter of fact, the pockets of his dinner-jacket contained the counterfoil of a stall-ticket and a programme of the performance, both bearing the date of that evening. "'An alibi prepared in advance,' objected the examining magistrate. "'Prove it,' said Prévailles. The prisoner was confronted with the witnesses for the prosecution. The young lady from the confectioner's thought she knew the gentleman with the eyeglass. The hall-porter in the Rue de Berne thought he knew the gentleman who used to come to see Jenny Saphir. But nobody dared to make a more definite statement. The examination, therefore, led to nothing of a precise character, provided no solid basis whereon to found a serious accusation. The judge sent for Ganimard and told him of his difficulty. "'I can't possibly persist at this rate. There is no evidence to support the charge.' "'But surely you are convinced in your own mind, Monsieur le juge d'instruction. Prévailles would never have resisted his arrest unless he was guilty.' "'He says that he thought he was being assaulted. He also says that he never set eyes on Jenny Saphir, and as a matter of fact we can find no one to contradict his assertion. Then again, admitting that the sapphire has been stolen, we have not been able to find it at his flat.' "'Nor anywhere else,' suggested Ganimard. "'Quite true, but that is no evidence against him.' I'll tell you what we shall want, Monsieur Ganimard, and that very soon. The other end of this red scarf. The other end? Yes, for it is obvious that, if the murderer took it away with him, the reason was that the stuff is stained with the marks of the blood on his fingers. Ganimard made no reply. For several days he had felt that the whole business was tending to this conclusion. There was no other proof possible. Given the silk scarf, and in no other circumstances, Prévailles' guilt was certain. Now Guinimard's position required that Prévailles' guilt should be established. He was responsible for the arrest, it had cast a glamour around him, he had been praised to the skies as the most formidable adversary of criminals, and he would look absolutely ridiculous if Prévailles were released. Unfortunately, the one and only indispensable proof was in Lupin's pocket. How was he to get hold of it? Guinimard cast about, exhausted himself with fresh investigations, went over the inquiry from start to finish spent sleepless nights in turning over the mystery of the Rue de Berne, studied the records of Prévailles' life, sent ten men hunting after the invisible sapphire. Everything was useless. On the 28th of December the examining magistrate stopped him in one of the passages of the law courts. "'Well, Monsieur Ganimard, any news?' "'No, Monsieur le juge d'instruction.' "'Then I shall dismiss the case.' "'Wait one day longer.' "'What's the use? We want the other end of the scarf. Have you got it?' I shall have it to-morrow. To-morrow? Yes, but please lend me the piece in your possession. What if I do? If you do, I promise to let you have the whole scarf complete. Very well, that's understood. Ganimard followed the examining magistrate to his room and came out with the piece of silk. Hang it all, he growled. Yes, I will go and fetch the proof, and I shall have it, too, always presuming that Master Dupin has the courage to keep the appointment. In point of fact, he did not doubt for a moment that Master Lupin would have this courage, and that was just what exasperated him. Why had Lupin insisted on this meeting? What was his object in the circumstances? Anxious, furious, and full of hatred, he resolved to take every precaution necessary not only to prevent his falling into a trap himself, but to make his enemy fall into one, now that the opportunity offered. And on the next day, which was the twenty-ninth of December, the date fixed by Lupin, after spending the night in studying the old manor-house in the Rue de Suresnes, 
and convincing himself that there was no other outlet than the front door, he warned his men that he was going on a dangerous expedition, and arrived with them on the field of battle. He posted them in a café, and gave them formal instructions. If he showed himself at one of the third-floor windows, or if he failed to return within an hour, the detectives were to enter the house, and arrest anyone who tried to leave it. The chief inspector made sure that his revolver was in working order, and that he could take it from his pocket easily. Then he went upstairs. He was surprised to find things as he had left them, the doors open and the locks broken. After ascertaining that the windows of the principal room looked out on the street, he visited the three other rooms that made up the flat. There was no one there. "'Master Lupin was afraid,' he muttered, not without a certain satisfaction. "'Don't be silly,' said a voice behind him. Turning round, he saw an old workman, wearing a house-painter's long smock, standing in the doorway. "'You needn't bother your head,' said the man. "'It's I, Lupin. I've been working in the painter's shop since early morning. This is when we knock off for breakfast, so I came upstairs.' He looked at Ganimard with a quizzing smile and cried, "'Pon my word, this is a gorgeous moment I owe you, old chap. I wouldn't sell it for ten years of your life, and yet you know how I love you.' What do you think of it, artist? Wasn't it well thought out and well foreseen? Foreseen from Alpha to Omega? Did I understand the business? Did I penetrate the mystery of the scarf? I'm not saying that there were no holes in my argument, no links missing in the chain. But what a masterpiece of intelligence, Ganimard! What a reconstruction of events! What an intuition of everything that had taken place, and of everything that was going to take place, from the discovery of the crime to your arrival here in search of a proof! What really marvellous divination! Have you the scarf? Yes, half of it. Have you the other? Here it is. Let's compare. They spread the two pieces of silk on the table. The cuts made by the scissors corresponded exactly. Moreover, the colours were identical. But I presume, said Lupin, that this was not the only thing you came for. What you are interested in is seeing the marks of the blood. Come with me, Ganimard. It's rather dark in here. They moved into the next room, which, though it overlooked the courtyard, was lighter, and Lupin held his piece of silk against the window-pane. Look, he said, making room for Ganimard. The inspector gave a start of delight. The marks of the five fingers and the print of the palm were distinctly visible. The evidence was undeniable. The murderer had seized the stuff in his blood-stained hand, in the same hand that had stabbed Jenny Saphir and tied the scarf round her neck. And it is the print of a left hand observed Lupin. Hence my warning, which had nothing miraculous about it, you see. For though I admit, friend of my youth, that you may look upon me as a superior intelligence, I won't have you treat me as a wizard. Ganimard had quickly pocketed the piece of silk. Lupin nodded his head in approval. Quite right, old boy, it's for you. I'm so glad you're glad. And you see, there was no trap about all this, only the wish to oblige, a service between friends, between pals. And also, I confess, a little curiosity. Yes, I wanted to examine this other piece of silk, the one the police had. Don't be afraid, I'll give it back to you. Just a second. Dupin, with a careless movement, played with the tassel at the end of this half of the scarf, while Ganimard listened to him in spite of himself. How ingenious these little bits of women's work are! Did you notice one detail in the maid's evidence? Jenny Safia was very handy with her needle, and used to make all her own hats and frocks. It is obvious that she made this scarf herself. Besides, I noticed that from the first. I am naturally curious, as I have already told you, 
and I made a thorough examination of the piece of silk which you have just put in your pocket. Inside the tassel I found a little sacred medal which the poor girl had stitched into it to bring her luck. Touching, isn't it, Ganimard? A little medal of Our Lady of Good Succor. The inspector felt greatly puzzled and did not take his eyes off the other. And Lupin continued, Then I said to myself, How interesting it would be to explore the other half of the scarf, the one which the police will find round the victim's neck. For this other half, which I hold in my hands at last, is finished off in the same way, so I shall be able to see if it has a hiding-place too, and what's inside it. But look, my friend, isn't it cleverly made, and so simple? All you have to do is to take a skein of red cord and braid it round a wooden cup, leaving a little recess, a little empty space in the middle, very small, of course, but large enough to hold a medal of a saint, or anything, a precious stone, for instance, such as a sapphire. At that moment he finished pushing back the silk cord, and from the hollow of a cup he took between his thumb and forefinger a wonderful blue stone, perfect in respect of size and purity. Ha! What did I tell you, friend of my youth? He raised his head. The inspector had turned livid and was staring wild-eyed, as though fascinated by the stone that sparkled before him. He at last realized the whole plot. You dirty scoundrel! he muttered, repeating the insults which he had used at the first interview. "'You scum of the earth!' The two men were standing one against the other. "'Give me back that,' said the inspector. Lupin held out the piece of silk. "'And the sapphire?' said Ganimard in a peremptory tone. "'Don't be silly. Give it back, or—' "'Or what, you idiot?' cried Lupin. "'Look here, do you think I put you onto this soft thing for nothing?' give it back. You haven't noticed what I've been about, that's plain. What, for four weeks I've kept you on the move like a deer, and you want to— Come, Ganimard, old chap, pull yourself together. Don't you see that you've been playing the good dog for four weeks on end? Fetch it, Rover. There's a nice blue pebble over there, which Master can't get at. Hunt it, Ganimard. Fetch it. Bring it to Master. Ah, oh, he's his Master's own good little dog. Sit up. Beg. Dozens want a bit of sugar, then. Ganimard, containing the anger that seethed within him, thought only of one thing, summoning his detectives, and as the room in which he now was looked out on the courtyard, he tried gradually to work his way round to the communicating door. He would then run to the window and break one of the panes. All the same, continued Lupin, what a pack of dunderheads you and the rest must be. You've had the silk all this time, and not one of you ever thought of feeling it. Not one of you ever asked himself the reason why the poor girl hung on to her scarf. Not one of you. You just acted at haphazard, without reflecting, without foreseeing anything. The inspector had attained his object. Taking advantage of a second when Lupin had turned away from him, he suddenly wheeled round and grasped the door-handle. But an oath escaped him. The handle did not budge. Lupin burst into a fit of laughing. <laughs> not even that you did not even foresee that you lay a trap for me and you won't admit that i may perhaps smell the thing out beforehand and you allow yourself to be brought into this room without asking whether i am not bringing you here for a particular reason and without remembering that the locks are fitted with a special mechanism come now speaking frankly what do you think of it yourself what do i think of it roared ganimard beside himself with rage he had drawn his revolver and was pointing it straight at Dupin's face. "'Hands up!' he cried. "'That's what I think of it!' 
Lupin placed himself in front of him and shrugged his shoulders. "'Sold again,' he said. "'Hands up, I say, once more!' "'And sold again,' say I. "'Your deadly weapon won't go off.' "'What?' "'Old Catherine, your housekeeper, is in my service. She damped the charges this morning while you were having your breakfast coffee.' Ganimard made a furious gesture, pocketed the revolver, and rushed at Lupin. "'Well?' said Lupin, stopping him short with a well-aimed kick on the shin. Their clothes were almost touching. They exchanged defiant glances, the glances of two adversaries who mean to come to blows. Nevertheless, there was no fight. The recollection of the earlier struggles made any present struggle useless. And Ganimard, who remembered all his past failures, his vain attacks, Lupin's crushing reprisals, did not lift a limb. There was nothing to be done. He felt it. Lupin had forces at his command against which any individual force simply broke to pieces. So what was the good? "'I agree,' said Lupin, in a friendly voice, as though answering Ganimard's unspoken thought. "'You would do better to let things be as they are. Besides, friend of my youth, think of all that this incident has brought you. Fame, the certainty of quick promotion, and thanks to that, the prospect of a happy and comfortable old age. Surely you don't want the discovery of the sapphire and the head of poor Arsène Lupin in addition?' It wouldn't be fair, to say nothing of the fact that poor Arsène Lupin saved your life. Yes, sir. Who warned you at this very spot that Prévailles was left-handed? And is this the way you thank me? It's not pretty of you, Ganimard. Upon my word, you make me blush for you. While chattering, Lupin had gone through the same performance as Ganimard, and was now near the door. Ganimard saw that his foe was about to escape him. Forgetting all prudence, he tried to block his way and received a tremendous butt in the stomach, which sent him rolling to the opposite wall. Lupin dexterously touched a spring, turned the handle, opened the door, and slipped away, roaring with laughter as he went. Twenty minutes later, when Ganimard at last succeeded in joining his men, one of them said to him, "'A house-painter left the house as his mates were coming back from breakfast, and put a letter into my hand. "'Give that to your governor,' he said. "'Which governor?' I asked, but he was gone. "'I suppose it's meant for you.' "'Let's have it.' Ganimard opened the letter. It was hurriedly scribbled in pencil and contained these words. This is to warn you, friend of my youth, against excessive credulity. When a fellow tells you that the cartridges in your revolver are damp, however great your confidence in that fellow may be, even though his name be Arsène Lupin, never allow yourself to be taken in. Fire first, and if the fellow hops the twig, you will have acquired the proof, one, that the cartridges are not damp, and two, that old Catherine is the most honest and respectable of housekeepers. One of these days I hope to have the pleasure of making her acquaintance. Meanwhile, friend of my youth, believe me always affectionately and sincerely yours. End of chapter 5